Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. This is the first of two specials from the on-conference Software in the Life Sciences, Development, Usability and Sustainability. This part is the unedited keynote from Carol Gobble, co-founder of the Software Sustainability Institute. Thank you very much. So I'm going to roughly talk about uh, better software, better research, but I thought I'd better give you some context first. So my team uh, produce and my collaborators produce a lot of open source software used by other people, and that's the critical thing, used by other people uh, over a long time. So I've been doing this for the last 20, 25 years in numerous languages, in different uh, communities, and diff with different uh, cultural norms around them. And uh, so some of the, these are some of the logos of some of the softwares. The Seek is the system that was just mentioned just now for sy systems biology data management. But I also did a workflow system very early on, which is now part of Apache. Um, things to do with the catalogs for bioinformatics and so on. But I've done a lot of stuff in bioinformatics. I've also done it in very complicated and continue to do it in very complicated environments with lots of users, collaborators and contributors in these quite complicated uh, projects uh, where, particularly at the European level, uh, multiple consortia um, and uh, again using, uh, working with people who were not just us writing software for ourselves. The latest ones are at the bottom. So the European Open Science Cloud Life Project, for example. Yes? Yeah. Uh, They'll all be on SlideShare. Okay. They'll all be on SlideShare immediately afterwards because I only finished editing it three minutes ago. So uh, they'll be on SlideShare. Yeah, everything will be open. And you'll be able to hack the slides as you wish. So otherwise, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? Um, so European Open Science Cloud Life Project, for example, is uh, 77 partners trying to build a life science collaboratory over the European Open Science Cloud. I'm not going to tell you what the European Open Science Cloud is. Nobody knows anyway. Um, so, but you can talk to me afterwards uh, about that particular project. From the point of view of software, um, I, I wrote a paper quite a long time ago about better software, better research. I've always promoted open source software. I believe in its widespread use and adoption. I believe that if you have things that open, you will eventually get citation and academic credit and you will get uh, contributions. And actually, uh, from the point of view that was mentioned about publishing, um, this is my Google Scholar, and these things starred are actually papers about software. They're things that I've published that I wrote some software. And uh, so the ones that have over a thousand citations have software. So software actually can be cited. You can be uh, uh, build a bit of a career. Of course, I'm a computer scientist in a computer science department, and so this don't mean shit, uh, sadly, because um, I'm uh, not publishing clever scientific papers about some esoteric denotational semantics of languages. I'm doing something that one of my colleagues said to me is merely useful. <laughs> this was meant as an insult, of course. I took it as a compliment. Um, 
So two big activities that I'm going to mention in my uh, presentation, and, and I, I'm going to use as a theme, um, Elixir. So this is the European Research Infrastructure for Life Sciences, which was previously mentioned. It's about building sustainable, there's the word, European infrastructure for biological information uh, in order to be able to support research. And it's a kind of act global, think global kind of project that's top down from the European Union through governmental uh, agreements across 23 countries currently have signed up to this. I'm head of node for Elixir UK, which has 15 organisations in it. So this, is, uh, this has 220 organisations in it, has pretty well every bioinformatics institute in Europe involved in it. And uh, what does it do? Well, there's a couple of things. So part of what I'm going to do here is informational for you guys. Um, it organises around technical platforms, around data, around uh, sustaining data sets, some of the ones that you presumably use, like ENA and so on, uh, training, compu computational um, features, so um, AAI uh, for, uh, for the community, um, interoperability, I head up interoperability along with Helen Parkinson at the European Bioinformatics Institute, where we, we try to persuade people to use standards that's a tricky one. Um, and tools. So it's a tools platform. And then there's a whole bunch of communities around rare disease, proteomics, Galaxy. Who uses Galaxy? Who knows what Galaxy is? Yay. Um, so Galaxy is one of the communities uh, around a particular technology uh, or, or piece of software. Um, proteomics and metabolomics around kind of various different t uh, biological techniques and others are around to do with the domain. And what we basically do in Elixir is uh, coordinate technical resources and activities, training, advocate policy for sustainability and uh, build communities, support communities. The mantra that we follow is the uh, findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable mantra, which came out as a uh, principles for data uh, back in 2016. But we also are now moving towards this from the point of view of computational workflows, pipelines, software, and other things. So findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. Has everybody heard that phrase before? Yeah, it's kind of on our hearts now. Um, so what does Elixir do in a nutshell? This is not the usual slide, but it's what, the one I will use for here because this is what we do with tools and software. So I don't know if this actually works. We, um, nope, nope. How does this, I'll wave at it instead. Okay, so we uh, attempt to run some registries around uh, registries for tools, registries for uh, coming up, some workflows. Uh, we do a lot of work with packaging containers. We already heard about uh, Docker and, and related things, biocontainers, bioconda, um, research objects is something I'll mention later on. Uh, there's an activity in benchmarking. How do we benchmark you know, whether software is up, whether it's still alive? Uh, does it still do the same thing as they said it, it did in the paper? Uh, we have specializations around integration workflows, particularly around Galaxy, but also other systems called, like, for example, Nextflow, SnakeMake. Uh, there's uh, currently 239 uh, workflow management systems uh, that are available, uh, of which I think uh, 219 are only used by the people who wrote them. But nonetheless, they, they exist. 
that just mean there are 20 that are widely used. And we've been developing the common workflow language as a way of being able to manage and interoperate between those workflow environments. We work on standards, uh, software policy and best practice, and training. So I'm going to touch on quite a lot of those things. So if you, hadn't, if you didn't know that Elixir did all these things, it might be useful for you to think about uh, how you might be working uh, or, or exploiting Elixir, because Elixir has a Danish node, and there's a Norwegian node, and there's a Swedish node, and there's a Finnish node. Um, so we organized by a hackathon in Europe last year. Uh, we run this BioTools directory, which will get better. Um, and uh, we also run a Galaxy Europe installation. So I'm also part of the Software Sustainability Institute. I was one of the founders of it back in 2010. And this was for, is for uh, cultivating better, more sustainable research software um, in order to enable world-class research. And this was basically from the point of view of we all built academic software, we use academic software. It would be good if we actually sustained software. And uh, I'll uh, show some examples of, of the evidence that we, we used for that. And this was a local thing. We did it in the UK. We did it, in, in a sense, it's, it's kind of the opposite of Elixir, whereas Elixir was this great big uh, vision uh, where we would organize at the national level and then trickle down to uh, researchers. This started off with boots on the ground, with research, uh, researchers and software, people who do software in their labs, in their projects, in their universities, in their institutions. And again, we do similar things. We do software consultancy, training, policy, and community um, building. And I'll be referring to all of these. Um, we mentioned that we've been going for quite a while now. We've just had our third lot of money. We've now been refunded. And uniquely, we have been funded by every single research council in the UK in a consortium. This has never happened before. So this right the way from arts and humanities through to uh, particle physics and astronomy have actually funded this institution. And it's four uh, universities, Manchester, Southampton, Oxford, and Edinburgh. So what do we do? We do a lot of different stuff. If you want to know about guides, uh, we have over 90 guides on how to do software sustainability, um, how to choose uh, software partners, how to, how to use Git, you know, the full uh, range of things. We do an online sustainability evaluation, so you can run through your software to see are you, where are you in the state of sustainability? What should you be doing? We also do T-shirts, which you can buy, and stickers, which you can put on your laptops, which I've brought with me. So let's go a little bit into um, why we motivated for the Software Sustainability Institute and why we do all this stuff in, in Elixir. Well, the research community relies on software. I mean, it's nice that nature finally twigs that actually software is pretty important. Uh, back in the day, we, in 2014, we did a survey in the UK of uh, 406 researchers uh, for the top universities and said, do you use the research software? Yes. And uh, what would happen to your research without software? Well, the big red bits are, um, it would be, yes, we do. And um, it would be impossible. I'm not quite sure what the ones who think it will be all right. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, 
We also know that the research community produces lots of software, and this is particularly where the Software Sustainability Institute came in, because we, we realised we're producing all this software with no support and getting funding for it to support things that you've, you've built already is really hard. We all know that. Uh, because you're funded to buy to make new things, not to sustain old things. Uh, and also the funding councils realised that they were producing a significant amount of software that seemed to disappear. So 91% of, of scientific software is important uh, for the, our researchers' uh, uh, um, own research. So this is another survey, um, a much wider survey of 2,000 scientists. 84% um, are developing software in their own research. 53% uh, claim to spend more time than they did 10 years ago. 38% spend at least one-fifth of their time developing software. So this tells us it's not just software is important, but software is being produced. And in, as I alluded to in the UK government, um, 840 million uh, pounds was invested in one year um, in the UK from the funding councils in software. They didn't know they were doing it, but it, if you read the grants, if you actually look what they were doing, that's what they were doing. And 30% uh, of uh, the research has been, uh, which relies on software um, over the last uh, four financial years that we, we kind of looked at in this particular survey. So the investment is going up. The investment in software and the investment in research dependent upon software is going up. Also, we're seeing software and research papers uh, going up as well. So if you search uh, ePrints repositories, uh, we looked at 31 different institutions, about 600,000. You can see that the number of papers that reference software or, or, or about software is also uh, going up. So this tells us that there is a real, you know, nature of finally spotted a theme that software turns out to be pretty important. And if we're going to do shared and shareable data in software, it's, it's absolutely key to reproducibility and productivity. You've probably all seen this PhD comics, um, which is deeply accurate. Um, so if we could actually get better software, we would have more transparency. We would uh, be able to eliminate errors. If we could, we, we could improve the use of that software. We could in encourage collaboration around that software because we know scholarship is the full software environment, the code that produces the results. So the papers are advertising um, the, uh, the data, they're advertising your results, they're advertising the software. And we all know this, this case as well, Jeff Chang, very famous case, where uh, the software was a homemade analysis program, which had a fundamental error in it, uh, had led to five retractions because when we actually examined, you know, it was completely wrong. And it's only because you really could examine the software that uh, the, by making those software exposed, by making it transparent, we'd have perhaps noticed this a bit earlier because Chang himself actually uh, discovered this and was noble enough to say it's wrong. So ask yourself, how many people aren't noble enough to do that? So that's an interesting uh, um, issue. Uh, but perhaps if we had our software a bit more open, it would all uh, be a little bit more transparent. 
So this has been recognized at uh, all sorts of scales. It's been recognized in the community at the grassroots through things like the Science Code Manifesto, through recomputation.org, who have kind of you know rules and manifesto cases to say, hey, if we were more open, if we did better software, it'd be awesome. Uh, let's all let's all do that. And it's also been recognized at the um, sort of uh, European level, at the governmental level, through major reports such as Science as an Open uh, Enterprise, and this new report called Turning Fair into Reality, which is just out in November from the European Commission. And if you look at it, you'll see it talks about digital objects, not just data. And digital objects include software. So for the first time, we actually get a European report that, um, that actually explicitly mentions software. Okay, so that's all very interesting. Yeah, we're all convinced. Now, what's the reality? Hey, I found some great looking software, but I can't get hold of it. It doesn't work for me. It's too hard to use. It doesn't work with my tools. There's no documentation. The developers don't have the uh, resources to help, don't want to help, or have gone. Um, who else uses it anyway? Will it be maintained? Can I trust it? So, you know, it's all very well saying, hey, I've had this software published, but, you know, how is it reusable? Then I also have the, uh, the other end. Yeah, so my software, uh, I, I, it was in a paper, um, I talked about it, and now people want it. God damn it, I don't want to be a software provider. I'm just somebody who wants to get on with my research. I don't have the time to document it or answer your stupid queries. It's really bad code, and I'm really embarrassed about it. That was a very common uh, attitude. I only made it for me anyway. I won't be able to keep it up to date. And here's the other one. My supervisor won't let me. That's quite a common uh, um, outcome of um, uh, because somehow it's a special source. And uh, so it's totally unique, and it's going to be the way that they're going to get their next nature paper. And cult cultural change is very hard. So if, uh, this is a very famous paper from uh, Vic uh, Victoria Stodden, which, uh, which looked at uh, a bunch of journals in order to be able to say, uh, well, oh, oh, no, it looked at science, that's right. It looked at science to be able to say, OK, well, since 2011, uh, you've made a policy that code must be available. Uh, so is the code available? And the answer is uh, no. It often isn't available. And uh, this was a particularly beautiful response. Thank you for your interest in our paper. For the calculations, I used my own code. And there is no public version of this code, which could be downloaded. Since this code is not very user friendly and is under constant development, I prefer not to share this code. That's quite, that's, that's not unusual. So, uh, so we've got quite a lot of cultural change to, to foster. Maybe one of the things that we can talk about in an unconference session is how do you foster cultural change? How do you change this mindset? So also, the other, other side, I have some great software. How do I get it uh, to be widely used? Have other folks contribute to it? Make it sustainable? Get people who use it to credit me, <clears throat> to actually cite me. Um, make it usable by more folk than me. Get the time and money to make it findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. And, of course, there's the other side. Yeah, there is some software I could reuse, but I didn't know about it. I like to reinvent my own wheels anyway. It's faster for me to code my own. I only get funding for making new stuff anyhow. 
I'm not funded or rewarded for reusing. I might even be penalized for reusing something else. I don't trust other stuff anyhow. Anyway, this is what I like. This is what I like to do. This is why I go to work. It's because it's fun to code. And it's also how I'll learn. Anyway, I've got no time or capacity to take it on. Do any of these resonate? These things? Have you said some of these things? I bet you all have, because I have. So, uh, for sure. And uh, this is my particular favorite over honest method tweet. Uh, you can download our code from the URL supplied. Good luck downloading the only postdoc who can get it to run, though. Uh, because this is a classic of, uh, this, is, this is the sign I have in my lab, which is over the door, over the top of each of my, uh, uh, my software developers, works on my machine. OK, that's not the same. And that's not findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. OK, so it's not fit for take on. And so there's a whole bunch of reasons why you, what things, there's a whole bunch of things you need in order to be able to, to make things fit for take on. Guides and uh, we talked about uh, uh, containerization and roadmaps for sustainability and all sorts of different things. Um, and people don't take on other people's software because it's not good enough, it's too risky, or they just don't know how. Okay, so, so one of the things you could discuss is this, um, how do you deal with this software stewardship debt? So the tricky about soft thing about software is that you start off with something and then you go into this valley of despair where you have to do this kind of technological debt in order to be able to make it continue to work. So you move from Rails X to Rails X.2. Um, and that is really expensive and nobody ever sees it. They just think you're spinning your wheels. But it's the thing that actually makes things continue to work that, wills, that means that that software will continue to work despite the latest security breaches in your in environment. So, uh, so that's a really difficult job that there's this uh, fundamentally software is a living object that's constantly evolving. If it's used, it's evolving. Um, so it's almost perpetually in legacy mode. So you have to be able to, to somehow um, surface that this is important to your managers so that they give you the time and the space and the funds and resources to be able to do it. But also they have to surface that to their funders and to their organizations. And that's very hard. Um, again, Victoria Stodden, if you haven't come across her work, she's an expert in reproducibility. Um, so when she did a, a review of machine learning community um, for code, um, the top reasons why they didn't share was time to document and clean up and dealing with the public. So I could say something about software developers. I don't know that they don't. Yeah, I won't go into that. OK, so here's, and we were talking about this in the car. Free software is not free. That's a fundamental thing. It's free like puppies are free. You get a free puppy. Ooh, I've got a free puppy. Now you've got to feed it. You've got to take it for a walk. You've got to fix the furniture that it's torn to shreds. It'll get old and it'll die, right? And software's exactly the same. Now, I've used, this is how we've got the Software Sustainability Institute funded. Funders don't understand software, but they know about puppies. 
right? And I literally stood up in front and said, puppies. And they went, oh, yeah, it dies. Yes, you have to feed it. Tell your PIs and tell your funders about puppies. Okay. So not all software is the same. So that's, I mean, it sounds great, Carol, but like, you know, not, not, it's not an even playing field, right? Software is not all the same. Not all software is valued the same way. Not all software should be sustained. Um, this is another article by Nagia and Katz, where uh, there's a Dan Katz, that they did a sort of audit of uh, some uh, um, article. I, I won't go into the details. I can't remember how many papers they are. I should have written it on here because uh, my memory is rubbish. Um, but uh, I think it was 90 papers. Anyway, but they, they saw 173 pieces of software were mentioned, different kinds of softwares. Uh, and really, the things that we're going to sustain, or the things that we want to really lift, are things that are key to recomputing, um, that aren't obsolete, that people actually care about. Um, and this tells us that we've got a software ecosystem. And that actually does affect how we go about our sustainability and how we do go about um, our uh, building credit around our software as well, which I'll mention a bit later on. So it's all patchworks of software. So there are things like frameworks and platforms. There's libraries. There's workflows and scripts. These can be counted as, as software pipelines. There's explicit tools and services. Some that they go from the invisible, so that you're doing some, particularly from the library point of view, is completely invisible to uh, the folks who are using it because they're actually using something that's been built with it. So with like Intermind, for example, is a platform for building uh, uh, model organism databases. But if you're using the model organism database, you don't realize it's been built with some software. You just think you're using the database. So it's kind of invisible. It's, in, it's like uh, hidden in clear sight, this, this piece of software. Um, right the way through to visible, you know it's this piece of software because you're clicking on the button and it has this, it's the software. That's the software you use. There's domain generic versus domain specific. There's things built by teams. There's things built by individuals. There's also a patchwork and spectrum of whether what you want to be able to, uh, the purpose of it is the code itself. I intentionally made this code so other people would be able to use this code. The code is the reason to, it's a side effect. The code was just a means of being able to, some, to make the algorithm concrete and I really don't care about the code at all. It's just the algorithm. And that has a different, there's a different mentality about what is your intent. Uh, because on one end, it may be intended for reuse. And on the other end, it's actually intended to be thrown away. If it's intended to be thrown away, the level of uh, effort that you put into it is quite different. Oh, tons of it. Scripts. All those Python scripts, all those R scripts that have been used to, uh, to do some basic analytics in your paper, thrown away. I, I work a lot with biodiversity people, and their way of doing uh, software development is to find somebody else's R script, hack out the bits that they don't understand, hack in the bits that they do understand, that's it. So their whole notion of versioning is hacking somebody else's uh, script. 
that's it. They don't use version control. They don't know about, uh, for, they don't know about testing and things like that. So it's basically hacking other people's stuff. Interesting, huh? Yeah, slightly alarming, perhaps. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's a, I would say that most software that's written by people who aren't professional software engineers is throwaway. And most research software is that, rather than written by professional software engineers. But it's, it's, it's the way it is written, because if, if yeah. it was written in a, in a proper way, then it's something that you could potentially use. Oh, yeah, we're getting onto that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so we hope. OK, so uh, I'll skip over this. But this basically says, uh, Software, so the software intentions can be quite complicated. I won't go into this. Uh, I'll, I'll skip over. I, all these slides will be available, and I can explain this <coughs> later on. There's also um, that uh, are we sustaining the function or are we sustaining the form? So this is quite interesting. So there's a, a community that say all we have to do is put everything into containers and we've sustained the software. That's kind of like sustaining porting it and preserving it so you can run it, um, as opposed to the community that says everything should be open source and in GitHub, which is I'll be able to at least look at it and I can then maintain it, because I could actually have a containerized piece of software that I can't, it's a black box. Um, so uh, they, these are the form versus function folks. And, uh, and so we're increasingly bringing a whole bunch of technologies in the life sciences in particular in order to be able to bridge these kinds of, and have a mix-up. You know, we use GitHub, and we use uh, Docker and biocontainers and various other things. And in fact, this has been taken to the extreme in the European Open Science Cloud Life project, where we're looking to use uh, the common workflow language, where is a way of describing um, the inputs and outputs and the tools of, of, a, of a computational pipeline. Um, that can also uh, reference uh, software components that are containerized. Uh, those files can be held on GitHub or generated from various different workflow systems like Galaxy. And then we can bundle together all of the files along with uh, descriptions about why, what this thing is doing and why into something called a research object. So it's, this is just a very quick sketch to say that uh, people are thinking about how to package all this stuff together so that it might be reproducible and reusable, both containerized, the form, and from the point of view of the source, so as a, a sort of black box and white box. Is that, so, a, is that a documentation system, or you actually execute the, the, the common workflow language? Yeah. Ah, ah, so that's a very interesting uh, debate. Um, so uh, you can execute common workflow language, but actually, uh, you have these uh, really high-performant workflow environments where you want to be able to ex execute it natively. So you're using the you can use a common workflow language as a kind of backstop, that's all I have, and I can run it as native common workflow language. But I think also if you have the native workflow, workflow itself alongside and the environment to run it, you can also run that. So it's, it's trying to, to bridge the spectrum. Do you see what I mean, Tim? Yeah, so is it the kind of thing where somebody would do their, uh, write up their code and then they would document it into the yes. after the fact? Yes. 
or you can write it natively, but most, most people would uh, write their code in their workflow language and then translate it. Yeah, it was, it was developed as an interoperability language. Uh, so Rabbix, for example, Seven Bridges, they use this. Is it possible to transpile between the two, or is it a manual? No, that's all that, all that tooling is what we're working on in this project, because what you want to do is to do automated translation. Of course, because it's an interoperability language and it's the common workflow language, it's not the most richly featured, okay? It's about how do I put together command line tools. So, uh, you know, it's not going to be as richly featured as your favorite workflow environment, but at least it documents in a way that is independent of the workflow environment what is going on and is a kind of your backstop if that's all you've got, if that workflow system's kind of gone, uh, is one of the 239 that have now died off, but yes. That's the idea of it. So let's go into the five steps to better, uh, better software, better research. So this is, uh, this is what we do in Software Sustainability Institute. So if you want to do better, here are five steps that we need to be able to do. We need to code, document, and deploy for strangers. We need to develop a software management plan. We need to get help and develop expert help. We need to get and offer some training, which was uh, what this, uh, I've forgotten your name already, I'm sorry. Julia. Julia, what Julia said. And we need to publish code and get some credit for it. So the first one, uh, which is uh, code uh, for strangers. Uh, now there's a ton of advice everywhere. You mentioned about the 10 simple rules. There's about uh, 10, 10 simple rules around software, software development. And the most recent one is best, uh, is uh, 10 simple rules for making software, research software more robust. That's just uh, been published. So there's a ton of uh, recommendations and advice, some of which is on the SSI website. And here it is in a nutshell, as a, something you can cut and paste and put in your bedroom, um, which is um, documentation, no surprises there, which includes things like provide test data and provide example data, access, Get some licenses sorted out. The number of pieces of software that don't have any licenses is extraordinary. You have terrible licenses. Uh, and make and version your releases, please. Uh, that would be good as well. Good enough practices like use version controls, use automated build and test, use off-the-shelf automated build and test rather than your own that you've uh, carefully uh, uh, fiddled with. Um, and uh, have clear and transparent contribution, governance, and communication processes. And then portability. Try to avoid hard-coded paths. Uh, log parameters and versions as you run. Uh, don't require special privileges to install. That's the, the basic stuff, right? Um, and, uh, and the other end of it is maintainability. So we have a maintainability checklist at the Software Sustainability Institute, which has things like, can I make a change uh, with a low risk of breaking everything else. And this is, again, going back to the idea of every piece of software that actually gets used is effectively perpetual legacy. So uh, keeping the show on the road, how can I maintain it, but also dealing with change. How easy is it to adapt to change? This is actually fundamental to sustainability. And, and I threw this in last night. These are things that, are in, uh, that I wish I'd... I'd kind of know when I started. Beware of version two feature creep. You do, second, you do the first version, it's great. Second version has everything you've ever thought about that you wish you'd had, and you end up with this 
bloated thing and version 3 is the one where you actually take all that out again and if you're lucky you get the money for version 3. Um, never underestimate how scruffy third-party stuff is. Don't tweak standards or standard systems uh, because they're standard for a reason. Sprints and hackathons are fantastic. Don't drift away from your users. So many pieces of software I've seen have drifted away from the user because the software engineers got really into it and they forgot about the users. Um, beware the developer egoist. So that's a project where you have a whole bunch of people on a team and one of the developers thinks they know better than everybody else and they drift away from the user and it becomes their thing. And if you don't get over, I, I screwed up one project, I'll be honest, doing that. Uh, I didn't put the egoist out the project uh, soon enough. Um, keep it simple. It's better to have a small number of users really love you than a large number kind of there, particularly when you're starting off. Um, so training. 47% uh, of scientists have a good understanding of software testing, um, um, have a, a good software, I think that's the wrong way around. Uh, don't have a good, that should have said, don't have a good understanding of software training. And 34% think that formal training is not important. Uh, it is, uh, or 37% thought it, training is important. That means that the heck of a lot of people didn't think that uh, training was important. Um, despite the fact that 56% uh, uh, of UK researchers are developing their own research software. Um, most have never had any kind of formal training, which is what we were, were talking about earlier. Uh, and this is a bit annoying when you think that for a software engineer it takes three to four years to be trained, for a senior architect, software architect, maybe ten years experience. For a, a chef, it takes three to four years, a head chef, ten years. The training in geography on software development is zero hours. No training at all. When we, when we looked at undergraduate training. So that's a bit disappointing. So one of the things that we drive both in Elixir and, and the Software Sustainability Institute, in fact, the Software Sustainability Institute rolled this out through Elixir, is the carpentries. So who's been involved in carpentries? Great, fantastic. So software data and library carpentry. Um, there's the first European Carpentry Connect conference at Manchester in June. Who's going? It's going to be good. Um, so, uh, Software Sustainability Institute, we've, got, we've trained 137 instructors. Elixir has run uh, 15 train the trainer workshops, uh, trained 227 instructors. Both have deals with software, uh, with uh, the carpentries, in order to be able to pay for workshops. So, if uh, that includes Elixir, so you can get money uh, from Elixir to have. Uh, workshops, uh, carpentry workshops in life sciences in, uh, in Scandinavia and in in Nordic. And in fact, there's also this code refinery. You know code refinery? Who knows code refinery? One person. It's the, uh, the Nordic uh, Institute for Training and E-Infrastructure for Research Software Development, um, which uh, here, they run carpentries. They do code refinery, they do instructor training, they do um, all of this kind of stuff. Um, they're a hub for fair software. For 
Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Estonia. There we go. Ah, so a carpentry is, um, this was for training the 95%. That, what that means is, this is for training the kind of people that I was talking about with uh, the biodiversity researchers. People who have to do some software were never trained with software. They don't know what version control is. They don't know what a build is. They don't know, what, they've never heard of GitHub. Um, so this is basic training. Um, and it's done through uh, workshops that are both that they can come to, but ideally that is done in situ. In ideally done within an organization with a collection of people from that community so that they all support one another afterwards. Um, and it's a, a, a pay it forward kind of system. So there's workshops for training the researchers around the tools that they need using their particular problems, very tailored. And then there's training for instructors to go and do it so that it gets this amplification effect. Um, and so it's a uh, not-for-profit, it's an international movement. And uh, so uh, we've pioneered this in, in both these organizations. It's an incredibly powerful way of getting some basic research software engineering skills. Does that make sense? So it's like local community-driven training for yeah. the people who have no idea what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, of course, you want experts as well. So there's people who really know what they're doing. Uh, one of the things we do in Software Sustainability Institute is we run an open call where we, we bring our experts to help uh, projects uh, improve their practices. So here's three examples uh, we went, where we went in. Um, and we, we did some re-architecting, for example, of this uh, biomolecular system run by Chris Wood, um, which used to be a one-man sort of small-scale scale software project. And what we did by helping him do the user assessment and re-architecting is turn it into a multi-developer project. Because going from a small one-man band to a multi-developer project is non-trivial. It's completely different sets of processes that you need to be able to, to set up. But we need, again, we can't just do that, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. That's not scalable. So how do we scale this? So one of the things we do in the Software Sustainability Institute is we have built a community of fellows. Um, so there's 112 fellows at the moment. Um, this is example. Here are some of our fellows. And these fellows, we give them some funds in order to be able to help them go into their communities to be able to, to promote the notion of software sustainability and software development. Um, they run topic-specific workshops. Their role is championing and influencing and migrating these, these skills. And we help with their career building. Um, so these ones are the life sciences ones I've highlighted there. So, uh, so this guy here, Norman Morrison, he's um, an SSI fellow, and he's in charge of the data ingest platform for the Human Cell Atlas, which you've probably <coughs> heard about. So he's one of the fellows. Um, from that, we did unionization. So well, we recognized at one of our fellows' workshops, which are uh, called collaborations workshops, uh, the next one is going to be in next week, 
that there was this whole community called research software engineers, which were kind of you know downtrodden in a basement somewhere. Here's uh, these are some of mine uh, research software engineers pointing at something finally working. Um, so we unionized um, over from 2012 onwards. We advocated for the notion of research software engineers, and we got them to get to get together to to be collective. Um, this is now uh, 1,500 members of the UK Research Software Engineering uh, Association. Um, the next conference is in September. It's, I mean, you can, everybody can go to it. This 300 people show up for these conferences. When we first ran the first one in Manchester, we thought maybe 50 would show up. We had to close the doors at 200. Um, it started in Ger uh, Germany as well, and actually Code Refinery are talking about setting up a research software engineer uh, collective. We now, um, every um, leading research uh, university in the UK now has a research software engineer pool. So they have a community, they didn't have any. 2012, there weren't any. And now there is this, this group, because we gave a name to it, that uh, is funded on the baseline of the universities, that is a pool of professional research software engineers with a career path where projects can hire in an expert to help them. Maybe to do some optimization of some code, or to do an, uh, a, a, a new interface or um, do, to bring professionalization into the, the software. Um, and this guy, one of my team, is the head of the Manchester team. So, so this has turned out to be an incredibly powerful uh, mechanism. Next, get a plan and publish. Develop, share, preserve. Develop your code using a code repository. Share and preserve. So there's a whole bunch of technologies and techniques now open to us in the academic area. Um, the ones that you'll all be aware of, like GitHub and so on, for develop. For sharing, there's now software journals, like the Open Research Software uh, Journal. There's uh, registries, um, specific ones, like BioGS. Uh, that are very specific, and, and Python package index, and others like the Elixir BioTools, which are very general. And of course, we, we know about all sorts of different technologies. And then preservation, uh, one can preserve and uh, deposit one's software into things like Figshare, direct from GitHub, and from, into the software heritage uh, from direct from GitHub. Software heritage is an attempt by the French to mine GitHub, any GitLab they can get hold of, in order to be able to preserve the software there for all time. And they've just published a UNESCO paper about software being a cultural heritage, being cultural heritage that one has to preserve. I think it's very interesting uh, that they've, uh, they've just done. Finally, campaign for uh, software recognition. Um, this is an article by uh, James Harrison, uh, which looked at uh, 90 uh, biological, uh, biology articles to be able to see, well, how do people cite software? And they have seven different ways of citing software, um, seven different ways that software is mentioned. 
uh, mostly citing to a publication, um, often just saying the word, just saying inline text, uh, in text name only, oh, I use Galaxy, no reference. Um, 27, 24% uh, uh, of the journals had a citation policy, so that meant plenty didn't. Interestingly, even if software proposed a way of having them <coughs> cited, those who cited it, 32% uh, ignored that citation, which is a bit uh, sad. But this is, uh, um, what you get is secret credit. Mm. Secret credit is the same as no credit, which is equal to no sustainability. Because when you come to say, well, everybody's using my software, prove it. Right, what does that mean? You know, downloads, what do they mean? Uh, you know, you, you, do, you want to really improve your downloads, just make a release every week. You're really going to scoot up your downloads then. Uh, but what you want is, like, who's using it for what? And that's really difficult uh, at the moment. Because credit is like love, not money. If I, give, if, I, if I love you, it doesn't mean I love somebody else any less. It's not like money. I give you money. I mean, I've got less money. But love is infinite, and so is credit. So I think we need to, uh, to really uh, change that. And that means improving the scholarly value of software. So even software that's a means to an end, as well as software in an end to as an end to itself. And also trying to get credit for invisible software, particularly software that's so widely used that nobody thinks of it as software anymore. They just think of it as breathing. You know, that uh, the software that you so commonly use. And there is this phenomenon that um, if you are in, a, uh, are in a paper as an author, it's most likely because you are part of that core team and the software is right in the foreground of what you're doing. But as soon as you are in the back team, as it were, and the software is just part of the infrastructure, so I tend to build infrastructures, data management platforms, computational workflow environments, people don't even know they're using them. They don't even really want to know they're using them. So they never get uh, cited. It's a bit like, um, you heard the story of Boeing? Boeing in the 1960s were one of the first uh, um, airlines to have software in their planes. And when they came to, when the guys came to weigh the software, because software must weigh something, it's important when you have a plane to know how much stuff weighs, they, uh, they came across these punch cards, because that's what software was. And they said, look, the it weigh software weighs 15 kilograms. Got to take that into account. And they said, oh, no, no, the software's the holes. <laughs> invisible. It's invisible. That's where the, the blog is. So there are plenty of ways uh, for software recognition now. If you go to siteresearchsoftware.org, there's a kind of collection there of how to cite software. The software principles, uh, software citation principles, which have been published by Force 11, another organization trying to do scholarly uh, change. There are ways of doing metadata that you associate with your software, uh, the code meta.json file, where you describe what your software is, and that can be mined so that uh, we can do proper citation, the data site metadata schema, so that we can build citation metadata around your software. And guidelines, because it's actually quite hard. What happened, how do I cite a library? How do I credit for something that is infrastructural that somebody else will use? 
Um, how do I cite versions? So I'm going to leave with a plea for personal responsibility. So I was part of a, a Dagstall uh, meeting. Dagstall is a bit like this, but in Germany, in a castle, uh, where everybody gets together and discusses things and has nice dinners. And we produced a manifesto for personal responsibility in the engineering of academic software. <clears throat> because a lot of the times people go, oh, you know what? Oh, yeah, the credit, the peer review system's broken. I can't get funding. But it's always somebody else's fault. Always somebody else's problem. Well, maybe we should take, well, that's, while we're trying to affect change for the whole way scholarship works and the whole way the funding agencies work, maybe we could do something ourselves. Uh, by recognizing academic software, by recognizing the academic software development processes, and by respecting the intellectual content of academic software. And I'm not going to go through this. I've just got it here because I thought you might be able to use it later, which is the, the manifesto. It includes things. I will publish the intellectual contributions of my research software. I will help scientists improve the quality of their software without passing judgment. Okay, without saying your software shit. No. So here's my final slide. Take personal responsibility. Don't wait, funders, wait for funders and, and policymakers and publishers to catch up. Think, what can you do to code and document and deploy for strangers? Develop your management plan to build a research software engineer community, to join one, to build you know, a fellowship of software, to get your code published and give other people credit, and to get an offer training. And uh, by, you can start by filling out this survey, which is uh, uh, trying to find out the challenges of sustaining open source research data tools. Okay, and on that, I will acknowledge all the people who funded me and all the people who uh, contributed to my work. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to the parent episode giving software its due, as well as the second special with keynote speaker Tim Gardner.